The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Good morning, Shades. Um, Our scripture is Job chapter 38, verses 1 through 8. I believe, hope so. Okay. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning to you all. Uh, the, the last, uh, the last, uh, I'm Mark, by the way. Uh, the, la- the last time I was with you all here, I made, a, a, I think, a rather naive decision to try to preach through the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Um, and, and today, I've decided to, to preach through the whole book of Job. So brace yourselves. Um, uh, Brad told me that you normally go about an hour for your sermons here, so I thought that would probably be plenty of time. Um, I'm teasing. I'm, I'm actually in the Anglican world, so these long sermons that you all do is not something I'm very familiar with, so we'll prepare for this to be a little bit shorter than you're used to. But I do want to give us an aerial view of Job, because I think the book of Job is something that Um, sits on our moment right now in ways that are obvious to all of us. We're in the long haul, in a cultural moment and in a national moment, a global moment that's challenging us to think about what it means to persevere in the faith. What What does it mean to hold on to the promises of God? And Job is one of these figures in the Bible that emerges from what almost appears to be the smoke and the haze of an ancient world, a world that's so different and strange than our own. Job is one of these figures in the Old Testament like Melchizedek or like Enoch, who was not, um, in in a way like Abraham, because he's he's not a member of the covenant people of Israel. He's someone from the land of Uz, which is maybe an Edom or an Edomite. We're not even sure who Job is, where he comes from, who are his people. How does he know who God is? How does he know to live the sort of righteous and pious life that Job lives. There are lots of questions about Job that we don't know the answer to. It's just Job is. Here here he appears in this story. As someone who's righteous and faithful before Israel's God, before the Lord, and yet we see something rather remarkable happen in his life that presses on us. This is is one of these biblical books that's perennial in, in the sense that the challenges that it brings to you and to me are challenges that remain with us um, for always. And Job comes to us as a book in a, in a beautiful three-part drama for you drama artsy people out there. The first two chapters of Job are, are the portrait of Job that we normally live with in the sense that this is the part of the book of Job that we find to be encouraging and inspirational. This is scene one where Job appears to us to be a saint. And that's the question that I want to keep before you this morning. What makes Job a saint? And the long haul of this book, that's the question. And in the first two chapters of Job, it seems rather clear to you and to me 
what makes Job a saint. He's blameless, it says there, upright, a fearer of God. Job, for example, in these first few chapters, is making sacrifices for his children. Um, just in case they offended God in some way. I need to start doing that more often for my own. He's remarkable. So he has, a, he has gravitas. There's a heaviness about Job, a respectability about Job in both his achievements and his character. I think you and I would be drawn to Job as a man, as a leader, kind of guy that walks into a room and you immediately are aware of his presence. But Job has no idea what's in store for him around the corner. And I know this is a book that many of you are familiar with. And I know many of you know the broad outline of these chapters, but here it comes. Out of nowhere, this accuser appears before the Lord in the heavenly tribunal, the Satan, the Satan figure. And he brings this charge against God. He threatens God's own reputation within the heavenly tribunal. And he says, just look at Job. Look, look at who he is. Of, of course he's a righteous and a blameless man. His children are kind of above average in every respect. Everything he touches, you bless. If I can put it in our terms, he's, he's got a 401k that's swelling. And of course he's blameless and upright. But if you struck him down, says the Satan, says the accuser, and took away all of his possessions in one night, and took away the people that he loves, we'll see the real Job come to light. That's what we'll see. I mean, that's what's unfolding. Now, I should stop and say this before we sort of press on. I can't make Job chapter 1, and frankly, just to lay my cards on the table, I can't make the book of Job come to you in such a way this morning that it removes the sting of certain things that are just going to leave you and me uncomfortable. Parts of the book of Job that leave me uncomfortable when I read Job chapter 1 is the fact that if you read closely, it's not the Satan figure, the accusing figure, that brings Job's name up. God brings Job's name up. Have you considered my servant Job? And then you had this rat-a-tat back and forth between uh, God and the Satan. That, that's a troubling feature of the narrative. Another troubling feature of the whole book of Job, if we can take a good year blimp view on it, is that Job never becomes aware of the scene that's unfolding for us in Job chapter 1. Never. You and I get, for you, I see a lot of undergrads here, for you undergrad people who have taken some English classes, you know about the omniscience of a narrator in a novel that you read. I'm, I'm almost done with the novel right now that I just started that's really good, and the, the narrator Christopher Blaha is his name, is giving me this sort of omniscient view of all these things that are taking place within the characters in the novel, but the characters themselves aren't aware of that. They're in the story. The narrator gets to stand outside of the story and provide for you as a reader and the narrator insight and understanding that the actual figures in the story will never know. So Job never knows about this encounter. And I should go and say this, not that it would have helped. Not that Job would have said, oh, I was a part of some divine sort of cosmic issue between you and the Satan, and you used me as a kind of sort of linchpin for your... It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have helped, right? But the point is, Job never knows about this encounter between the Lord and the Satan, the Satan figure, and yet God brings up Job's name. And then, and this is the other troubling feature, and then God gives 
the Satan figure the green light. He releases him into the hand of the accuser. With this simple proviso, don't lay a hand on him. And in a blink of an eye, all hell breaks loose on Job. Livestock, servant, horror of horrors, his own children, all lost in a swift moving river of destruction, deprivation, and loss. And what does Job do? Brace yourself. This is the saintly stuff we're talking about. He arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell on the ground, and here's the stunner, he worships. He worships God. He cries out to God in faith. He lifts his voice in hope, and this simple recognition that everything that Job had was gift and not possession. He had no ownership over any of it. Now you have to wrestle with this and let it sit with you for a while. But Job is coming into direct enc- into a direct encounter with the freedom of God. And it's the freedom of God that's going to cause Job a problem as we move throughout the rest of the book. But what's the freedom? Well, God had come to Job as the great giver. And now God is the great taker. But he's the same God. And this is what Job says. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will return thither. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And listen to this incredible description. And in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with anything wrong. God, you've done nothing wrong in taking away from me. These things were not mine. They were yours. You gave them, and now you took them away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's a stunning picture of faithfulness in this moment. What a saint, we might say. That's scene one here in the first chapter, or act one of scene one. Act two, if you think it was bad in the first part, hold on to your hats here because it's going to get worse. How could it? So here the accuser comes back in to the heavenly tribunal, and he raises the stakes of the game. Uh, He tells God, well, I don't know, Job must, this is me paraphrasing, all right, but Job must have some kind of narcissistic self-disorder, some sort of megalomaniac or something. You strike down his flesh, go after his body, (laughs) and then we'll see the real Job come to light. And here it goes again. This is the hard part. God gives the green light. And he says, you can strike his flesh, but just don't kill him. And honestly, just don't kill him sounds pretty good until you hear Job later in the book lamenting his very life. There are worse things in the world than just don't kill him. It reminds me of the old seasick joke. You heard this before? When you get seasick out on the ocean, the first 30 minutes you're afraid you're going to die, and then the last 30 minutes you're afraid you're not going to die, right? So here we see Job's heart and his mind. They've been afflicted here in these first few chapters. And now Job's body is afflicted. And he sits by the fire pit, covered in boils, scraping them off with a broken piece of a clay pot, If you want to know how horrible the scene is, when Job's three friends appear in the next chapter, chapter, at the end of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3, when his three friends appear, they're so stunned by what they see with Job's suffering, both externally and internally, that they remain silent with Job for seven days. I I tell my students at Beeson that that's Job's friends at their best. When they don't say a word. The moment they speak, just like you and me, the moment they speak, the train goes off the track. But when they're quiet, they're right on track. 
The shock must have been enormous. Even Job's wife says to Job, do you still persist in your integrity? Just curse God and die. Bring, bring this thing to an end. And in all this, says the narrator at the end of chapter 2, Job does not sin with his lips. That is a remarkable statement. These are the easiest sins that we commit. I'm a professional at sinning with my lips, as I imagine many of you are as well. Grumbling, complaining, deceiving, dissembling. Yet through it all, Job never sinned with his lips. It's remarkable. So that's what these first two chapters are. And I think a lot of times preachers tend to sort of zone in on these two chapters. It's Fox's Book of Martyrs kind of stuff. It's uh, for you Civil War fans out there. This, this is Colonel Chamberlain and, and the 20th Maine charging down a little round top at Gettysburg with nothing but fixed bayonets. I mean, this, this is the stuff that we love because we like winners, right? at least winners in religion. And he's a hero. He's making, if I can use old Roman terminology, he's making a good death. He's a champion of the faith, unwavering in his principles and his commitments to God, even when God strikes a heavy blow against him. It's a remarkable picture of, of Job. But Job chapter 2 moves into Job chapter 3. And it's actually chapter 3 all the way to chapter 37. So, we're, so you get two chapters of this wow picture, and you get all this big meaty stuff in the second act, of the second scene of this big drama, that's a very different portrait of Job. And here's the challenge as you move from chapter 2 and to chapter 3 and following. Job now has to live into the faith of his first two chapters over the long haul. Now he's got to enter into the long haul. And the enormity of his faith that we saw in the first two chapters begins to wane and to sag under the, under the, the enormity of the pressure that he's living in, and he cannot escape it. And here, I want to be very clear for you this morning, what is the main source of Job's significant disorientation as we move into this middle part of the book of Job? The main part of Job's disorientation is this. He does not recognize God anymore. He doesn't understand what God is doing. His relating to God had taken on a certain kind of pattern that had become predictable. But God's not predictable anymore for Job. In terms of a 20th century theologian named Karl Barth, he says, Job has encountered God in a form that's no longer recognizable to him. Up is down, left is right. The most basic questions of Job's existence have now come undone. And here's the basic question that really is at the core of our very identity as followers of the living God. God, who are you? How can I identify you? How do I pick you out of, out of a lineup of competing gods? How do I know who you really are, God? And this creates an enormous amount of internal tension. Cognitive dissonance is the million-dollar term we might use. He is living into deep internal emotional dissonance. Listen to some of the words that Job says in these middle chapters. I regret the day that I was born. I loathe my own life. He, that is God, terrifies and afflicts me in my dreams. I want my day in court to make my case before the living God. God has wronged me. Job even says God isn't good. Job's sufferings are...
but it's the suffering of all of God's people. It's as if the weight of the suffering of God's people throughout time makes it appear, its appearance in the book of Job and weighs heavily on him with force and with fury. No punches are pulled, no easy answers given, no quick draw from the holster that, the work, that all things were going to work together for good, as if that's some quick fix to our deep sorrows. Job is lamenting, he's complaining, he's raising his voice against the injustice of his friends, against the perceived injustice of God himself. And here's the shift that's occurred. Now God is no longer his benefactor. He understands that God is his adversary. Here is the challenge. Can I just say something as an aside? You've got these three friends that show up for Job. Uh, Bildad, Zophar, Eliphaz. I've told my students before, excellent dog names if you're looking for any. And here these three friends arise, right? And they, and they come to Job, and they begin to bring Job um, what appears to be wisdom, right? Um, and, and maybe here's the hard part for those of you who have read the book of Job before. I remember feeling this even as a teenager reading the book of Job, as I would read the counsel of Bildad or Zophar or Eliphaz. It, it didn't seem that everything that they said was all that bad, in fact, boy, this might be a little controversial, but I'll, you know, I, I'm leaving and I won't be back. Um, you, you can even maybe find some Bible verses to support some of the things that they said. Go, go to like the book of Proverbs and read something like, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed out begging bread. So what you see here are these three friends applying wisdom to Job and, and this, I think, is so crucial for you and for me, especially as we talk to one another about the faith. They are applying wisdom in an unwise way. Um, roughshod. Lacking sensitivity to the dynamic of this situation. Thinking that wisdom is a boilerplate that can just be applied to anyone in any moment. And, and just so you all know, that's how the book of Proverbs is meant to be understood, I think. Train up a child. I've got four children. I'm thinking about getting rid of one, but I know I've got four right now. Train up a child in the way that he or she should go. And in the end, they will what? You know this first. They'll what? They're not going to depart from it. And then we want to say, until they do. Because what the Proverbs are giving you are general maxims about life and the way in which life should go according to normal circumstances, recognizing that few of us live in normal circumstances. So here you have Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz who are applying wisdom to Job here in ways that are very unwise. They are taking an omniscient, a universalizing view of Job that's really unique and privileged for God himself. They're taking God's viewpoint on his life. This is one of the reasons why in the book of James, James tells us, you need to ask wisdom from God. And if you lack wisdom, ask for it. God will give it generously. And I think the unstated point that James is making is... We all lack wisdom. And if you think that you can just apply your white sheet or your white paper or your principle that you have or your church or your car bumper sticker about the faith to everyone's circumstances in their lives, hold on, life doesn't work that way. And by the way, that's one, not, not the only reason, but that's one of the reasons why Job and Ecclesiastes are in the Bible. As a little check for you and for me to remember, 
you're human, your views are not omniscient, and a little humility in the face of other people's circumstances is probably a good road. There's Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz waxing eloquent. And in the middle of the book, this is where I wanted to go with you, and in the middle of the book in Job 19, if you have your Bible, turn there. In the middle of the chaos, this is one of the things I love about Job. We're going to see at the end of the book, and we'll get there, but we're going to see at the end of the book that God has this face-to-face encounter with Job. It's, it's, I wouldn't say it's a happy moment for Job, but it's going to happen. But here, in the middle of Job, we see this remarkable testament to faithfulness. Because here's the question that's now pressed on us. When we look at the first two chapters, Job's sainthood becomes pretty clear. It's, I call it Braveheart Christianity. A stiff upper lip Christianity. But now we see Job really clawing at the ground through these middle chapters. And in the middle of these chapters, he is wrestling with ultimate things pertaining to God himself. God appears to Job as his adversary. And listen to what Job says in the middle. Verses 21 of chapter 19. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you, my friend. He's talking to Bildad here. For the hand of God has touched me. Now, that verse right there is, I don't know how, that's, that's meat and potatoes Christianity. Job's not wrong to understand that God's involved in his suffering. I've spent several years now at the Cathedral Church of the Advent downtown. That's, that's where my family goes to church. I, I served in that church as well. I do some teaching and preaching. Uh, Frank Limehouse was the rector there, or the dean at the cathedral for a long time. Um, just wonderful, wonderful godly man. Kind of irascible older guy too. Fun guy to be around. He told me over lunch one time that when he was a curate, which means he was basically a a pastoral intern at a church in South Carolina when he was just coming into the ministry, Um, he was at a local parish and the phone rang apparently and the word comes in that that a, a stalwart family in the church, their daughter, horror of horrors, had just been killed in a car accident. And so the father, I mean, the the priest uh, looks at Frank and says, come on, I want you to just come to the situation, don't say anything, just kind of sit to the side and and learn from the the experience. So they go, Frank Frank told me, I'm never forget this over lunch, he says, I will never forget what happened in that living room. This well-intentioned minister looked at the mother who was grieving and said, I just want you to know that God had nothing to do with this. And Frank said that mother, through her grief, looked right at the priest and she said to him, please don't take away the only hope I have in this moment. Job understands that God is involved. And he understands that God is involved even now, God appearing to him as his adversary. He's not wrong in that. So in the midst of this, we see Job who's wrestling with God. Does that sound familiar to you in the Bible? There's another place in the Bible where we see someone wrestling with God. Jacob is one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. And it is weird, 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 that story. Here Jacob is in Genesis 32. He's by the river Jabbok. Here's your little fun Hebrew lesson for the day. Jacob's name is Ya'abek, or Ya'abok. He's by the river Ya'abek. He's about to wrestle with, which is another Ya'abek form 
all that Yabek stuff you hear, the Hebrew writer of Genesis 32 is having a blast. Because he's wanting you to know this whole scene here is about Jacob and his name. So here Jacob is in an act of what looks to be incredible chivalry as a husband and a leader in his home, sends his wife and children ahead to meet Esau first. Y'all go ahead. I'll, I'll catch up with you tomorrow. And he stays, in the words of Genesis 32, all alone by the river Jabbok in the middle of the night. And the Bible says a man appears. We know in time is not just any man. This is God in human flesh. And Jacob's wrestling with God, with this man. And, and here's the part that's so... So it kind of stuns you as you read the text. It seems that he's kind of got the upper hand. Jacob's got, this is irreverent, but he's got God and a fool Nelson. Right? And, 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 God, and, 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 uh, and God says, let me go. Because, in this scripture, because he was prevailing over him. And you talk about weird stuff here. Let me go because the sun's about to come up. I mean, it's like vampire stuff. I don't even know what that means. But just, just the sun's about to come, we better let me go. It's a strange encounter. But what do we see happening here at the river Jabbok? That Jacob is wrestling with God, and you hears the words, I will not let you go until you bless me. And then God changes his name. You're no longer Yaakov, the wily one. You are now, uh, Je- you are now Yisrael, which means you have striven with God and you've prevailed. Hosea chapter 12, that's your homework for the re- week. Go read how Hosea understands Genesis 32. For Hosea the prophet, Genesis 32 is exhibit A of what it means to be a faithful Israelite. What does it mean to be a faithful Israelite? That you sit by the river Jabbok, and even when God appears as your adversary, you refuse to let go of him and his promises. I will not let them go. Even though you appear to me now, not as my benefactor, but as my adversary, life is not going according to plan. I'm going to hold on to your promises, and I will not let you go. I will hold fast to them. Luther, Calvin, the great figures of the history of the church have all understood Genesis 32 to be a type, to be a symbol for you and for me of what faithfulness, what a real saint looks like. Not someone who's got who's polishing their halo with some regularity. But somebody who's wrestling with God by the river Jabbok, and even when God appears as one's adversary, I will not let go of his promises revealed to me in Jesus Christ. I will not let go. Can I I say something hard? And I don't don't like it. I don't like what I'm going to say. I wish it weren't true, but I'm just going to, again, I'm not coming back. God's given us his son. He's given us Jesus, who hung between heaven and hell for me and for you. Which means that we're secure. You get that? We are safe. This this is the language of the Psalms from beginning to end. Oh, how blessed are those who take refuge in Him. We have refuge, ultimate refuge in Him, in Jesus. We're safe forever. Nothing bigger can ever be given to us from our Heavenly Father than His own Son for our sake. The beautiful songs that we sang about this morning. A trust in His blood that offers us the forgiveness of sins and safety before the terrifying holiness of God. We have all of that in Jesus. And, can I, and this is the hard part, though. Nothing else is promised. Nothing. I, I, 
You're not promised a great marriage. You're not promised stalwart children. You're not promised the dream job. There's, there's so many things that we tend to think that if I just sort of live in this way, that all the, the dominoes are going to fall just according to plan. You're not promised any of those things. And, and my old dead buddy John Calvin, if he were here today, he'd say, and sometimes God throws those dominoes out of place, like a difficult marriage, or a hard child, or a difficult job, or frustrated dreams. God sometimes throws those dominoes out of whack in your life to let you know that this world is not where you're placing your hopes. That you're living for another time in another place. And Job models that for you and for me right here in the middle of his own Jabok moment. Listen to what he says. Oh, that my words were written. <laughs> that my case could be inscribed in a book, verse 23. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead it would be engraved in the rock forever. This is so beautiful. I know you're pursuing me, God, but I'm going to write down my testimony and I want it written down in such a way that it's in perpetuity forever for future generations to read it. And lo and behold, here we are reading it this morning. It's kind of remarkable. We're doing it because of what he's saying. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh will I see God. I need a redeemer. I need a lawyer. I need someone who's going to stand in for me. And it's not immediately clear in this text who the redeemer is. But the next phrase in this really helps you to know that this figure is God himself for Job. For at the last it says he will stand upon the earth. And I'm going to get a little technical geeky with you with language this morning, but let me say this. The language here isn't temporal or adverbial in the sense at the last time. I think the language here is actually a noun. In other words, we're not to read this as at the last time, but as the last one will stand upon the dust. And the last one, the last one standing, refers to the, our Lord and the sovereignty of God himself. And he's going to stand upon the dust, the very material from which you and from which I are made. Job gets this live encounter with God. He's left with the otherness of God, who's both fearful and beautiful at the same time. Do you understand that about God's being? God is overwhelmingly terrifying in his otherness and overwhelmingly beautiful in his otherness at the same time. And it's our Redeemer that allows us to sit in safety to the fear of God and to enjoy at the same time the beauty of God's very being. So how is Job a saint this morning? He's a saint when he clings to the ground, when he pounds on the dust, when he struggles to hold his breath as the waves of his life and his soul and as even God himself seems to be beating down on him. And Job in this state refuses to let go of this future hope, the last one, and the confidence that even when his skin might leave his bones, I'm going to see God. I refuse by God's grace to let go of God's promises even when from my vantage point the problem seems to be with God himself. Death will not have the last word. God will. And what's the vindication that we have? It's a vindication in His Son, our Redeemer, our Advocate, 
our everything. Several years ago now, um, a dear friend of our family's, his name is Ron Hawkins. Uh, we, this, you, many of you probably have friends like this, where you grew up, wherever you grew up, and there was that one family that you just hung out with a lot. We, we had this. It was the Hawkins. We went to the beach with them. I grew up in Florida. We went to Anna Maria Island every summer with the Hawkins. Um, I can remember he was my seventh and eighth grade Sunday school teacher growing up. Uh, I can remember one night about 10 o'clock at night we were at the beach and Mr. Hawkins and my dad and I jump in the car and go get raw oysters together. Not a wise thing to do, but we did it anyway. Um, so just lots of great memories. Went to, um, had, had an incredible moment with Mr. Hawkins in London one time, standing before. Have any of you been to the British Library in London and seen the display of, of books that they have there? I mean, for geeky Bible people like me, um, they've got Codex Alexandrinus and Codex Sinaiticus. I know that's, I've just lost you, I'm sorry. But they're side by side right there. It's like, whoa! Um, and I was sitting there with Mr. Hawkins. We're looking at this. We're in Italy together at the Colosseum. So just wonderful memories. And about four or five years ago now, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and was doing everything that he could do to sort of um, preserve and extend his life, even though he was doing it for his wife and his daughters. He wasn't all that interested in, in all that. But I'll, I'll never forget our last time together at, at Anna Maria Island. And he is at this point in time three months from death. And we're sitting under a tent, and it's just Mr. Hawkins and me. And, and uh, we start to have that hard conversation about his funeral. And he looked at me. I'll never forget this. It's such a beautiful Job moment. He said, Mark, I want you to make sure that my daughters and Nancy know that, I have, that they have a future. And that we have a future together in Jesus. Make sure that they know that. I thought, what a beautiful testimony to leave to his family, to leave to me. It was a Job moment. He was wrestling with God. He knew that his days on earth were numbered. But at the latter day, or the last one, I know that my Redeemer lives, and we'll stand together. We have a hope and a future. And even in this moment right now, we're called to live into that hope and that future. Because here's the beauty of God's being. He's already waiting there for us. He's the last one. I know that my Redeemer lives. So, Lord, seal these things upon our hearts, we pray. Give us the gift of faith. A gift of faith, Lord, that doesn't always look polished and clean and tight, a bow neatly tied. But the kind of faith, Lord, that's willing to grapple and wrestle and hold on to your promises, even, Lord, when you appear confusing to us. Help us to trust what you've given to us in your Son. How blessed are those who take refuge in you. In Jesus' name, amen.